Welcome to Live Free Church. We're a church that's passionate about reaching people at all costs. Here you can find all our recent sermons. We are so glad you joined us today. We want people to live free lives ultimately found in Jesus because we believe that free people, free people. I love hearing all your guys' like stories, and I just love our church as we're like growing, as we're like trying to reach people in our city, just even hearing us in this room interact. But I think for a lot of us this week, I'd love to just invite us to pray before we get into this message of the fact that this week's been really challenging for a lot of us. Some people were stranded on the coast. Um, I remember even just like on Tuesday morning, I was like, I think I should sneak out um, quickly just to buy a few little staples <laughs> at Costco. And I think I've never seen people so afraid, uh, freaked out. I think at Christmas time, as we're kind of reaching the Christmas season, uh, people just at their worst moments. And I remember actually at one point at the very end of Costco, I was getting to the lineup, which took almost 45 minutes, reaching out and being like, you're doing a great job to one of the staff members. And I went in to save on because I was like, there cannot be no produce, nothing in in stock, and I went to save on, and the workers were just like sitting there being like, I can't believe this happened. And I was like, you were doing a great job, you're doing a great job, you're doing an awesome job. Thanks for being here because, man, like at Costco, just hearing people just like be their absolute worst, you know, with carts full of food and buying more and more and more and more milk. But I think for a lot of us in a season where it's been really, really hard, it's been awful um, with the pandemic, just have one more thing, one more, one more like cut. Someone said one time it feels like a death by a thousand cuts. And I feel like I'd love to pray for us as we get into this message of just reminding ourselves of who Jesus is. Let's pray. God, thank you for, for your love and for your grace. I think some of us come here who are weary and need rest, who are broken and need a savior. Father, you have been with us this week. I think about all the churches that we're partnered with Cross British Columbia are struggling with, with, with floods, with people displaced from their churches. I pray for the church in Princeton. I pray for their pastors. I pray for Kyle, that he would be equipped to love people and reach people in his community. I pray for our church in, in Chilliwack. I pray for our board member in Abbotsford who's helping people who are displaced. I thank you ultimately for, for your provision and your love, Jesus, for us. That's so often, it's so easy to get focused on our feet, where we are, but not actually lift our eyes up and see you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, would we desire you more than anything? You have provided so much for us. And I'm ultimately thankful for you. So would you center us in who you are? Would you ground us, Jesus, in who you are today? In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I did this assessment um, to plant a church in Kelowna. I had to go through like a assessment of like about four days. And I met a, a guy from Vancouver planting a church um, in the Anglican denomination. And this, this man was like, we're sitting down, we're talking, and um, we had to share our story. And if you ever like hear someone's story about um, how they came to know Christ or their encounter with Jesus, it's always such an interesting thing. And this man was talking to me, John, and he said, he said, actually, I wasn't brought up in a, in a home with Christian values. You know, he said, actually, 
I, w- I never really heard about Jesus until, you know, my teenage years. And in college, I became really angry about, about Christians because their faith didn't really make sense. And so what he said was that he, in college, university, he would actually debate with Christians over and over and over again. And the more he debated with Christians, he said, the more angry he got. He said he got, he got so angry about these people and their simplistic faith. Their faith that he's like, is this factual? Is there something behind this? And he kept on like debating and just like raging at Christians. And he said one day in his worst moment of his life, when he had nothing left, when everything was stripped back, when he, he said in front of a whole room of pastors that he felt like this was going to be the end of his life. He had a whole plan that at the end of his life, Jesus gave him new life. That Jesus met him in his worst moment. He said that all the moments that he debated with these Christians, all these like little, these little like truths that the Christians talked about over the course of years and years and years and years, he remi- remembered those things in his worst moment of his life. He said, we're talking about today this idea of, of Jesus and who do we say he is? Who does this world say he is? In our community groups, we actually have community groups that meet every single week um, in people's homes. We have a group that meets on Sundays. We have a group that meets up on, on Tuesdays and Wednesday. We would love for you to be a part of those groups because we actually walk out these questions, talk about these questions. But it gets you realizing that in our culture, so often people can see Jesus as an okay teacher, you know, as a great philosophy, as maybe like a great moral authority, that maybe Jesus actually brought something okay to our world, like you think about the golden rule, people talk about that, like I should treat others as I want to be treated myself. But so often that we look at Jesus as just a good teacher. We don't see him as a savior. But in this account today, we see that there's two reactions to Jesus' life. The people in the Gospels were never apathetic about who he was. So often we look at Jesus, I think the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Then I look at a city like Kelowna, that a city like Kelowna is, is pretty incredible. It's pretty remarkable that we're pretty well off, that our city is like none other. I remember my first week in Kelowna, I'm sitting down at third space where we're doing our Christmas Eve service, and someone's talking about building a soccer league across Canada and the deal they're negotiating, they're talking about, is $100 million. <laughs> like, there's this incredible affluence our city has, but yet there's like this incredible poverty our city has. If you just go down Leon Avenue and see the brokenness of people's lives. You see, so often when our city, I look at Kelowna, and there's an indifference to Jesus. C.S. Lewis, he says this, which is very fascinating about about how he wants people to interact with Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. 
or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left us that option. He did not intend to. You see, I think sometimes for us in this culture, what we think about, we think about God really matters. The Tozer said it's the most important thing about us is what we think about when we think about God. This passage we're going to get to in Mark chapter 3, if you can open your Bibles or down the app, um, a version app, we use a, a translation called the CSB. It's a Christian Standard Version. And um, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, if you can get there. And we're kind of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark for the next year. And here's what it says in verse 20. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. So there's a huge crowd again that is constantly following Jesus. This is kind of the height of his ministry. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. Jesus says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying ultimately Jesus was, has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What an interesting passage this is, right? I think so often when you look at these relationships that Jesus has, these, these encounters that Jesus has in the first three chapters of Mark, you hear claim after claim after claim about Jesus, right? Because I think for us, it shows us so often that, that people still interact these ways with Jesus. In chapter 3, Actually, up to chapter 3, you hear these claims that Jesus says he's the son of man, which if you go back and, and sometimes people say, well, I'm only a New, Christ, New Testament Christian. But you look at the Bible that Jesus was referring to, it's the Old Testament. It's the Torah. It's the prophets. Jesus used this word over and over again, saying he's the son of man, which really comes from Daniel 7. 
It's a divine figure from heaven who comes to judge and cleanse the earth at the end time. He says, just what Dave was talking with us a few weeks ago, that Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He says he has the power to forgive sins. And he says everyone's sin and all sins that every human being does is against him ultimately. You see, this is just Mark chapter 3, but you're going to see over and over and over again in Mark's gospel the things that Jesus claims in the opposition he faces. You see, the first thing that happens when Jesus has all these claims in his life is in verse 21, it says, his family heard this and they set out to restrain him because they thought he was crazy or out of his mind. You see, there's really two, two responses to Jesus in this passage. One, he's crazy or two, he's evil. You see, he's building up a huge following. He's building up this crazy gathering of people, drawing people over and over and over to himself. It said in the, last week that the crowds were, were so big that it was dangerous that Jesus had to, to jump on a boat to teach people because they were getting packed together. You see, Jesus' family heard about his claims. They heard about his crowds. They heard about what was happening, what he was saying, what he was teaching. And they were worried about what was going to come next, that people were going to say that he's an evil person, his opposition. They actually went out to try to reel him in, it said. See, it's way easier to go and say, well, this person has flipped. (laughs) Right? This person is a little bit crazy. This person is a little bit out of his mind. Right? In this culture, so much of their family was connected to their name, connected to their, their family origin. Like sometimes does, does it happen in our families today when someone in our family does something and you're like, don't say that, don't do that, don't, you know what I mean? Like, oh my goodness, like I've, I've seen families before do this all the time. Like they're going to like, you know, bring kind of like dishonor to our name, but they won't be able to say those words, but like, I can't believe that person posted on Facebook or I can't believe this person believes us or I can't believe, especially in a time with COVID, right? Like this person believes this, this person believes that, but it's so often to, to dismiss people and say, maybe they're a little bit crazy. Maybe they're a little bit conspiracy theorist. You see, people even today think that Jesus is crazy. The people have a hard time believing him because they wonder if he's just a myth made up by crazy people. You know, I'd love to know when they wrote this gospel account, when John Mark was writing this, (laughs) can you imagine how like that family would have felt? And they're like, oh, we're gonna put in there that Jesus' own family, when he went to his hometown, actually thought he was a madman. They thought he was crazy. His, his mother and his brothers came out and guess what? They like, you're gonna put that in there? Are you sure you're gonna put that in there? Like, can you just make us sound way better? <laughs> Can't you put something nicer in there about us? That we, we knew who Jesus was from the very beginning? You see, this is the reason why we can know these accounts are true because there's an unfiltered narrative that if you were to go back and write a narrative about Jesus' life, so often they just put in the best things. There's a moment here where his own family thought he was crazy. They thought he was, he needed to be reeled in. His teachings were too radical. They were worried about him. They wanted to take charge of him. And so often it's about control. 
It shows you when you and I come to know Christ, we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we have to realize that ultimately he's in control, that Jesus is ultimately in control. I think we often have these moments where we want to be in control, that I want to be in control. That maybe you look at Jesus and you're like, wow, he's too much. He's asking too much. That he scares, the thing, scares me the way he's asking me to live with my bank balance or my friendships or my family. Maybe he's just asking me to, to give my whole life to him. I think so often when his family was looking at Jesus trying to control him, we do the exact same thing. We're like, man, it'd be so much easier if we just had a God who looked like us, who sounded like us. If we just had someone believe in the same narratives that we believe in. I think so often in a culture, especially in the last year and a half, where we've had these kind of interactions, we've had people, I think we've, as we've had digital church experiences, that so often, like, we're being discipled, we're being cultured and trained by Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Like, it's like we're being discipled in microseconds, and those microseconds actually are changing us constantly to be less and less like Jesus. Because I think so often we want control in our life. We actually want to be in power of our life. His family made this claim about Jesus, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. They wanted to reel him in and control him. And in the next verse, in verse 22, it says here, the scribes, the religious leaders, who had come down from Jerusalem, they said he's possessed by Beelzebub. What it's really is like there's, it's like a, a character of Satan. It's like a, a picture of Baal. They say Baal is like the Lord of Flies. He drives them, they say, he drives out demons by, by being the ruler of demons. You see, it shifts from his family saying he's crazy, he's a lunatic, from actually these religious leaders saying he's actually absolutely evil. You see, these religious leaders knew that Jesus' popularity grew and grew and grew and grew to the fact that they had to deal with him. They couldn't just like keep him as like a, an unspoken person. They actually had to deal with with Jesus in this way. So actually what they said was, he's evil. He's possessed. And this is what Jesus says is the unforgivable sin. <laughs> what he's saying here. I'll get to that in a second here. But Jesus comes from outside the system. He's an outsider. This creates alarm and resentment for those inside, especially the religious elite. So the critics need to go on the attack and attack Jesus because they're alarmed over his authority over the spiritual world. They just didn't show up and heal people. He actually healed them from the demonic. He healed them spiritually. These are things that the Pharisees, religious leaders, could not do. They're like, how does he do this? It's easy to say that Jesus is just a mad lunatic, he's crazy, or that his religion that we follow, so often people say is, he's, he's evil that Jesus' followers do evil things. They hear that over and over again when they, the character of the church historically is that people say over and over again the church has done evil things, awful things. You see, that's how the religious leaders had to rationalize what Jesus was doing in people's lives. You see, your life 
really is showing people that Jesus is alive. And how do you deny that? How do we deny what Jesus has done in Sue's life? How do we deny what Jesus is doing in Levi's life? Or Bill and Jeanette? Like, how do we deny that? Because you have to rationalize it somehow. His family was afraid, but the religious leaders had to rationalize how people were being changed by this man, physically and spiritually. It shows us that some, so often we want to rationalize an encounter with Jesus. Maybe it's your coworkers, maybe it's your family, maybe it's people around you that say, maybe you'll grow out of this. Maybe you'll just like graduate on to like more mature thinking about who Jesus is. I became a Christian in grade 10. And I think my family thought it's just going to be a phase. <laughs> I'm 38 now. They don't think it's a phase. Right? Like, how do you rationalize the redemptive nature of Christians living in Kelowna, of David, Nana? How do you, how do you deal with that? Of Mark? When we go through really awful moments and Jesus does something beautiful out of it, that we see more of him, that he actually changes us constantly more and more into his likeness, into his image. You see, I think when you identify as a Christian living in a world that's deeply secular, that you're going to see over and over again that people who say the same things about Jesus will say the same things about you. So often they'll say, oh, I can't believe you believe that. That sounds crazy. Actually, maybe the church you're a part of, I think, is evil. Or I think that all religions are evil. I think there's been some damage done in Jesus' name, like the Crusades. Someone said in our, my community group, they said, you know, that group from Texas, do you know that group? And I was like, what? what? It was somebody Google it. And it was the Westboro Baptist Church. Have you heard of them? People full of hate, full of bitterness, and people all of a sudden just, all they hear is that. They don't see who Jesus is. Jesus explains after these people encounter him, people who, who think he's crazy, but they think he's evil, Jesus shows, here's who I am. It says here, if, Jesus saying, if, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit has never, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You see, Jesus no longer just like, he's, in the first three chapters of Mark, he's just like directly telling people exactly who he is. But all of a sudden he shifts a little bit and says, actually, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a house. Because I think you're not getting who I am. You're not understanding what I'm trying to do. You see the parable, the story here Jesus shares, the first parable in Mark's gospel is an allegory. The strong one is Satan. His house is his domain, the present world, which he seeks to hold secure. 
his vessels or those hapless victims whom he's taken captive. But the stronger one is Jesus who has come from God, invaded Satan's stronghold and bound him. See, the allegory, the story, prompts us to remember the prologue of, of Mark's gospel where John the baptizer announces that one who was more powerful than he would come. It turns out that he is also stronger, not just than, than John the Baptist, but he's stronger than Satan himself. He's stronger than sin and death. You see, Mark doesn't go and describe in full detail the temptations in the desert, but clearly Jesus must have bound the strong man for him to be able to plunder his house. You see, Jesus has authority spiritually. What the gospel of Mark has shown us is that, that Jesus is stronger than Satan. That Jesus is stronger than death. That Jesus is stronger than our circumstances. That Jesus is stronger than our pain. That he's stronger than our doubts and fears. That Jesus is stronger than anything you and I will ever face. Even if it feels like it's going to crush us and destroy us. It shows us that Jesus is actually stronger than anything. And when we live in that strength, we live in Christ's life. The response every day. There's two responses here. We can be honestly curious and passionate about Jesus, or we can harden our hearts to the cause of Christ. And in doing so, we align ourselves with Satan himself. That's what Jesus is saying here. See, Jesus stops at this point engaging with these religious people because he's saying they're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They're speaking against the Holy Spirit. What they're really saying is they're not understanding who Jesus is. And they're saying he actually is just possessed, just like, just like the people, evil spirits. You see, instead of focusing on the hard hearts, Jesus is going to show how his power changes us every day how it changes me, how it changes you. I'm going to invite the band up as I kind of wrap this up. But this passage is simply saying to us that the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Holy Spirit is to show us that Jesus isn't just a remarkable teacher, just a moral authority, but he's a mighty one. He's the Savior when you're in line at Savon or Costco and you're terrified about buying a gallon of milk or you're worried about your friend losing their house in Abbotsford, you have to realize that he's stronger than that. That Jesus is stronger than any sin, than any presence of evil, than any pain or suffering. What God's saying here is that I can forgive every sin but I can't forgive any sin that you're not willing to see you need forgiveness for. If you refuse the forgiveness I've given you, if you refuse what the Holy Spirit is showing you right now, there's a promise. If you look for forgiveness, if you confess brokenness to Jesus, the promise is that when Jesus looked at those seated around him in that circle, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers, you see, in a patriarchal culture, society, 
in which family was everything, absolutely everything. Your identity was everything. Jesus has the audacity to say to these people in his circle, in this crowded room, that even if your parents have rejected you like my parents have rejected me, you can be my family. And I'll give you unconditional love so powerful that you can take that, you can take that rejection. I think some of us at Christmas, we struggle because we realize that emotionally, maybe physically, personally, our parents have rejected us. But Jesus is saying here is that when you're ultimately not thinking of me as a, as a crazy person or an evil, evil person, but you truly see that I'm stronger than anything else in your life, that I want to give you life and life to the full in John 10.10, 10, that nothing will destroy you. Even your family rejecting you won't bug you because you're part of my family. You're adopted into my new family now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to us as you've been speaking to me this week. And Lord, I would live into this identity that I'm adopted into your family. That you're stronger than anything in my life, any circumstance that I'm overwhelmed with, Lord. We love you and we need you. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Please subscribe to our podcast. Share with your friends. We would love for you to join our movement. All you have to do is go to livefree.church to join us.